0: Afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome
1: to Notre Dame Stadium. Zibigowski, going to get to the outside.
0: He has blockers in front. Brady Quinn looking, pump fakes, he rolls to the near side, throws
2: it, it's caught by Samaja.
0: inside the 20, inside the 10, he's going in, Notre Dame has scores
1: Jones is the back, he's got it again, and Jones, a letter of Tony Jones makes a cut, gets a block, and scores! Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's up and welcome in. This is the Sons of Saturday Irish podcast with Tyler Rojack and Luke Smith. We've shifted from the off season to the preseason now. The training camp is in full swing for the Notre Dame football team. They had their first practice um, this past Saturday. And at the time of this recording, I think we're just, damn, 26 days away from the season opener against Florida State in Tallahassee. Uh, we'll be joined by Matt Fortuna here in a bit. You know Matt. He's a recurring guest now and National College football writer for The Athletic. He also spent several years in the Notre Dame beat when he was with ESPN. Matt's been all over the conference realignment thing since the news broke about Oklahoma and Texas, so it was great to have him on and share some insights on how it's going to impact the current and future state of college football. Plus, we dive into Notre Dame's position in the whole deal and a lot of training camp talk with him as well. I know Luke and I shared some thoughts in the conference thing in our last episode, and realignment talk isn't always the most exciting, but it's important to understand what's going on, especially with all the conference TV deals coming up here in the next few years, because it's going to have a massive, massive impact um, on everyone in the sport. We're actually seeing a little bit of that uh, already. As Notre Dame announced last week that the home opener against Toledo will air exclusively on Peacock, the streaming service which is owned and operated by NBC Universal. So Luke and I will get into that, as well as the new Shamrock Series jerseys that were unveiled Monday afternoon. And we'll close with some recruiting updates because Notre Dame picked up two huge commits last week that catapulted them to the number one spot in the Rivals 2022 team recruiting rankings. How long will they hold on to that spot? I don't know. Uh, But, Luke, let's start with a team that will actually be taking the field in the blue and gold this fall. It's been a really busy past few days. Uh, So, really, just what are you hot on now that camp is officially underway? So,
2: Brian Kelly spoke with the media for the first time this camp on Saturday. I believe he speaks with them again tomorrow, which is Tuesday. Uh, And, you know, he he had a couple comments that I thought were interesting. I'll start with the offensive line. He announced that Jarrett Patterson and Josh Lugg are the two – People that should be that are have been declared starters so far, which I guess isn't surprising. Um, but maybe what enlightened some people, and this has been kind of coming about the last couple of weeks, but he announced that Jared Patterson will be back starting at center, which is of course where he played last year before he got hurt. There was some speculation that he might play tackle and then guard, and now in the last couple of weeks, it seemed like he was trending back towards center, and that will be the case. And Personally, I like that move. I thought that pre-injury last year he was the best center in the country, so I never really understood why he wouldn't go back there. And while I can get wanting to play your five best linemen, I feel like it's more important to start from a position of strength, and I think you certainly get that with Patterson at center. I also do expect Kane Madden to start. And as the media gets more access to practice, I think that will become apparent. But they only saw them on day one, and on day one, the first team offensive line from left to right was Blake Fisher, Zeke Carell, Jarrett Patterson, John Dirksen, and Josh Lugg. I'm not shocked that Madden wasn't in there the first day just because he's a a new guy. He's a he's a transfer, even though he started 31 games. I don't think Kelly could have just put him in day one, but I do expect him to, to be there, probably in place of Dirksen in night one in, in Tallahassee. So that's kind of how I feel there. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about the offensive line, but that's kind of just what I'm thinking, at least in terms of that.
1: I was a little surprised by just coming out first day and saying that Patterson was definitely going to start at center, although it makes sense. I feel like the conversation about Z Corral has been uh, just a – a little weird, I guess you could say, um, considering last year he actually started a few games and he was sort of projected to be the center just because that was his natural position. And then I guess the conversation on Jared Patterson was more so that he was so good that he could play multiple positions and sort of make it work for the rest of the offensive line. But I'm with you. I like it. Just like, look, you've got one of the best centers in college football, just play him at center and, you know, kind of figure the rest out later. And, Brian Kelly in his press conference mentioned that part of this decision was um, sort of a nod to his future in the NFL. Um, That's his position. That's what he's going to play in the NFL. And like you said, he's probably one of the best centers in college football last year. And that'll probably be the same when the season concludes and he's going in the NFL draft. So I like that move. Kane not running with the first teams at guard isn't a total shock. It's not like Jack Cohn, who was here for the entire spring. Kane Madden didn't make his transfer announcement until the summer. So he's still earning it, which is to be expected. But like you and I have said before, he's almost certainly going to start. And Brian Kelly also, I don't want to say temperate expectations with Blake Fisher, but he didn't assign him the starting left tackle job. But I think anyone... Uh, who's been following Notre Dame football since the spring. It's pretty clear he's going to start there. And then, you know, the other two guard positions are to be determined, but I think it'll shake out um, how we expect it to, probably with see Carell at left guard and then Caden um, Madden at right guard. But you know what? The the offensive line in game one could be pretty different than the one in the last game of the season. We don't know.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting that you touched on it there. How Brian Kelly said that. He felt that by not starting at Jared Patterson at center that he might be hurting his future prospects um, of an NFL career or, or where he might be best suited in the NFL. Because I thought that Brian Kelly is only known for ruining his linemen's NFL careers by projecting them at certain spots, a la Ian, Liam Eikenberg saying that he was probably going to be a guard. And lo and behold, the Dolphins came out with their depth chart tonight and Liam was listed as the starting left guard right now. So uh, maybe he knew
1: what he was talking about,
2: but what do we know?
1: It also wouldn't be a training camp without some wild message board speculation. This season, it came in the form of Jordan Botello. And basically, if you haven't heard or you haven't been keeping up with it, There's there was just a lot of speculation on message boards, on Twitter, about Jordan Botello's eligibility for this upcoming season. And look, in the past, like when you hear that sort of stuff, usually when there's smoke, there's fire. We've dealt with season-long suspensions before, guys being out for four games. Um, recently Kevin Austin missed a whole season. Dexter Williams missed four games. Kevin Stafferson missed the first three games. Of the You've League heard Kavari
2: Russell talk about it on this show. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. Like this stuff, usually when you hear about it, um, unfortunately, most of the time it ends up being true this time, Brian Kelly pretty much shut down any of those rumors in his press conference in a sort of emphatic way that frankly, we're just not used to seeing with him where he basically said, I don't know where those rumors came from. He's eligible. We expect him to play every game. So good thing that's behind uh, Notre Dame, I guess. I don't know. I thought it was weird, but it looks like that's sort of uh, over and done with.
2: Yeah, thankfully, too, because he should have a a large impact on the defense. But you're right. In the past, it it certainly seemed like when we hear things like these that they unfortunately do come true. But wherever this came from, um, and that's not to say that there there wasn't an issue. It, It certainly sounds like there was, but it was resolved, whatever it was, and, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that because, like I said, uh, Patel is an important part of this defense, and uh, I'd like to see him out there. I, I guess I was a little bit surprised to hear Kelly say, you know, I expect to play him every game. And uh, you said before this, when these rumors were swirling around, I wonder what the over-under is on traits is in this uh, interview. And, and he said it zero times, so uh, shocking.
1: Yeah, that might be the best, the most positive indicator for Notre Dame is that in his season-opening press conference, Brian Kelly didn't use the word traits one time. Yeah. It's amazing. Huge <laughs> for the program.
2: Another another note of interest that Brian Kelly brought up in his presser on Saturday, Notre Dame's roster is 95% vaccinated. I mean, we, I think this isn't really shocking to us. They said that coming back to school, unless you had a medical exemption, that you had to be vaccinated, both as a student or faculty or staff. So the big thing, at least from a competitive perspective here, is that if a Notre Dame player contracts covid the rest of the team wouldn't have to do extensive contact tracing. So that's a that's competitive advantage. I will say on that note, I saw that Ole Miss came out today saying their roster is a hundred percent vaccinated and that is absolutely shocking to me. I, I I mean but I also saw then a tweet saying, I bet some uh like math tutor got vaccinated seventy five times. Like it just made up for
1: the whole team. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many Ole Miss fans are pissed when they said that number though, You gotta be kidding me, a hundred percent but
2: yeah, so that was another thing of note. Um, I know you probably wanted to talk about the receivers a little bit. Uh, I, what was the, the phrase that Kelly used there? He called it a tr- transformational. Yeah, a transformative summer for, uh, I think, specifically Braden Lindsey, Joe Wilkins, and uh, the third guy being Lawrence Keys. So that's good to see. I mean, I'm still waiting to see what they can do in practice and then the games. I mean, it, it's great to hear that it sounds like they've put in the work, but now it's about execution, um, and I did think. Now that I say that, there was a clip put out by Notre Dame today of Braden Lindsey, Moss, and Clarence Lewis, CPA, in practice. Uh, that was a cool clip, but there's no way those defensive backs can win in one-on-one highlights. They just get abused yeah. for, because they're not going to show them throwing a pick. So I honestly, I know we discussed this a lot last year. But I can't remember what we decided, whether or not we should put any stock into the highlights. But I think we decided against it. It really just shows how bad my memory is because I I don't remember. (laughs) But last year, obviously, it was a little bit different because the media had no access to practice. So this year, we have that benefit of actually having them there and being able to see some things for themselves. But I do remember Jordan Johnson being in quite a few clips last fall.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And the spring as well, because that's when it was really coming out when Notre Dame, you know, there's a lot of interest in the spring. Jack Cohn, new guys, new faces all around. And then the only access to spring practice that anyone could get was clips put out by the Notre Dame team. We were trying to figure out if the coaching staff, like who has the final say on this stuff? I think in this case, I'm just picturing Clarence Lewis post-practice, you know showers, gets on his phone, pulls up Instagram or whatever, and the first clip he sees is like his worst play from practice, <laughs> posted by the official Notre Dame account. Lindsey catches the ball, and then screams, get the fuck <laughs> out of here. Like, if I'm Lewis, I'm pissed. I'm looking at the you know social media director on the team like, hey man or woman, what the hell? Like, <laughs> but I get it. It's sort of a necessary evil, and it's part of the deal. So, on one hand, it's encouraging that he says it's a transformative summer for those guys, and then I guess, you know, to play devil's advocate a little bit, he sort of begs the question, well, why did it take that long? Yeah. Why were they not putting in that kind of effort? And I mean, I don't know how the entire process works, so I'm not going to make any assumptions, but what isn't Lindsay's whole thing is that he's like super fast, unbelievable athlete. No one could touch him in the open field. So you think that he would typically dominate um, conditioning drills, but again, not going to make any assumptions. Let's just look at it from the positive side here. Brian Kelly called out all three of them by name. We get into this with Fortuna as well. So called him out, and it's better that they're, you know, living up to those expectations that Brian Kelly put on him in the spring. Definitely happy about that. As for the person throwing him the ball, Jack Cohn hasn't officially been named the starter, but Brian Kelly also said in that press conference that he expects to name QB1 after the first full scrimmage, which I believe is this upcoming weekend. So by next Monday, we presume that Jack Cohn Will be the starting quarterback for Notre Dame, barring anything catastrophic in the next week.
2: Yeah, and I fully expect that. And on that note, uh, you know, Brian Kelly said that Notre Dame was uh, going to announce captains today, Monday, as we sit here about ten forty-five South Bend time. I, I guess that's not going to happen. Um, and my first gut reaction to that was perhaps because that's pending faculty board approval. My first thought about that was. Well, maybe we have a Ronnie Stanley situation here, where someone didn't pay their parking tickets, and so we still need to fix the parking problem in Notre Dame. And we're open to ideas if anybody has them.
1: How many outstanding parking tickets did you have when you graduated? How I many did I have? Like, oof,
2: like I think seventeen.
1: Seventeen um, is a big
2: number. But then, well, I had at least five. Well, I went in there, and I also had like a, an injury slash illness the last semester of senior year. And the thing is, I wasn't giving myself good spots. I just didn't renew my permit senior year. So I would park in the guest parking oh. and use the hour-free parking. Um, but it would be like five hours, so then I would get nailed. <laughs> and so then I just hopped in there on crutches one of the last days of school. and was like, seriously, you are going to do this to me? And they got rid of them all. So it, I did not actually pay a dime. Um,
1: That's pretty smart. Utilize the crutches mm-hmm. there. Make yourself look weaker and pathetic. I mean, I was definitely got all mine from parking – in the parking lot right outside Legends. Yeah, yeah you just I go was through that. late to class. You go
2: through that little like I mean, you can fit a car through the gate still, even though it's down.
1: Yeah. So.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean I did that <laughs> from time to time, but I was typically in the guest lot. Um but yeah, I mean I guess I will say, like, we still need to fix that issue and maybe we just form our own consulting group about parking issues and they just, we just expense the ECO every night until we figure this problem out. But that's a, a thing. It should be a top day. five
1: priority for this board of trustees, the, the parking issue.
2: the other thing you just said this before this, and this kind of made me realize when we were talking about captains, like they're supposed to announce quarterback uh, later this week what if Jack Cohn's a captain? Uh, And so maybe Brian Kelly realized it actually doesn't make any sense to name a guy, the captain before I name him the starting quarterback. So I don't know if he's going to be or not, but like, I've seen that speculated somewhat that he could be because they talked about having like seven captains. And if he is, wouldn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to name that before you've named the starting quarterback. So just, just a thought.
1: Yeah. And he was named uh, one of the 20 ultimate warriors by Matt Bayless for his work in the off season conditioning program He's been in South Bend for a little while now. He started the spring semester there, so <laughs>
2: yeah. That's funny you say that because I saw he was all academic ACC in the spring, and he will never play an ACC game. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's hilarious, actually. But yeah, who knows? Um, Maybe by the time this is released, maybe it'll be announced or something. But expect to hear that in the coming days, as well as the official announcement that Jack Cohn will be starting week one for Notre Dame. And then in week two, Notre Dame's home opener, um, we expect to see him as the starting quarterback again. But there was the big news released last week that that game against Toledo will be... Um, stream exclusively on Peacock. You need to have a paid subscription. I don't even think you could get away with a free trial for that one. Right. So not surprisingly, a ton of people freaked out about it. <laughs> I mean, there was a big reaction. I get it. What was your you know initial instinct to that whole thing?
2: Yeah. I also catch myself doing this all the time, complaining about NBC, whether it's this or like they're announcing a new broadcasting panda. But then I catch myself. I'm like, wait, why do I care? I'm at every game. But I understand how for people who don't have that benefit of living an hour and a half outside of South Bend, this could be very annoying and potentially a sign of things to come. So I'm curious to see what happens when the NBC deal is up, honestly, and even a few years before that, because obviously it seems like subscription-based offerings are the way of the future, whether it's streaming, written coverage like The Athletic, uh, my guys at Sage Spot over there, and even contact lenses these days, like shout out. Hubble and Waldo, which I recently learned you can get contact lenses on a subscription basis. There's no denying that this is the way things are going, so we'll see. Uh, I personally think that cable has too big of a pull to fully commit to Notre Dame television coverage of games that's solely subscription-based, but it could happen, and that's something that people have speculated on the past week. So we got into this with Fortuna a little bit, but maybe CBS gets involved now as well because they don't have a college football commitment when the SEC jumps to ESPN. So another thing, and and this is just kind of a random thought I had as I was thinking about this, but we saw a lot of remote broadcasts the last 18 months because of the pandemic. And while I know a lot of people and shows are dying to get back on the road, I I wonder if that has an impact at all moving forward. We saw Lee Corso do an entire season of college game day from this pool in Florida. And don't you think some people might think, you know what, I can still do my job on Saturday, but be afforded the opportunity to spend more time with my family. I mean, Kirk Her- Herbstreit's got to be sick of doing multiple flights almost every weekend by this point, right? Wouldn't it be nice if you just have one to cover whatever game he's doing and do the show from there? So, I don't know. That's just kind of what I was thinking. But um, a lot of uncertainty around college football, and it's kind of all tied to the media deals and, and conference realignment surrounding that.
1: Honestly, one of the first things I thought of when I heard about this was, I am so glad I am not the person or persons who has to field those telephone calls. <laughs> from pissed-off Notre Dame fans and alumni because, uh, oh, my God, I can't even imagine. Just imagine, like, an older alum in their 60s or 70s who can barely handle a television remote as it is, and now they have to pay for a subscription service and potentially download Peacock to the TV. Maybe the biggest losers in this entire deal are the receptionists covering the phones and also the grandkids of said alumni who then have to explain to them how to download Peacock, how to set up the subscription and get this game going on Saturday, because it's, it's just going to be a lot. I thought the timing was kind of poor on Notre Dame's uh, end because we are getting so close to that game. And, you know, this is something that's been a free product for 30 years. And now all of a sudden people have to pay for it. I think there's a lot of high expectations on, NBC side and Peacock side as well, we're like, okay, I'm paying for this. What more do I get out of this? There has to be some plan. Because if it's the same old shit, then of course people are going to be pissed. Because then they're like, okay, isn't this a whole national brand? I'm sure that Peacock, maybe some of these things are in development. They can't announce it right away because then they're sort of tied to that. But that's something that I'm going to be interested in seeing. Obviously, I won't be seeing it live. But I will want to tune into this broadcast and see, you know, is NBC bringing out some bells and whistles? Uh, that enhanced the broadcast. Maybe I know they tried that new TV angle. I, was it last season or maybe it was yeah, the it season sucked. prior where it's like the overhead Sky Camp. It was it was terrible. There was this big conversation about it going into the season, then it was very poorly received. And then they sort of ditched it um, other than I think using it on some kickoffs and stuff. So look I get it um, when you try to change broadcast people are Typically, you know, reluctant to change, but I think there's a lot of pressure here um, on NBC side to enhance it in a way that is actually worth the money that these people now have to pay. To just watch one game.
2: And do you think that that announcement was accelerated at all by the discussions that have been going on the last several weeks surrounding conference realignment? And this is just Notre Dame and NBC basically saying, "Hey, look what we can do. We uh, we don't have to worry about any of that, and we can just put out our own product like this."
1: I don't know if it was accelerated, but I think that the potential impact of this on all of conference realignment could potentially be huge. You mentioned Kirk Herbst the ESPN side of things. Look, like we've talked about it a little bit. We'll get into it more with Fortuna. But I think the potential impact of this decision could be massive. Because say this goes well for Peacock, right? And from Peacock's point of view, there's going to be less viewers for this game than any Notre Dame home game in recent years now. that makes sense. But given that every viewer now has to pay this subscription, is the revenue greater with less viewers but the subscription than broadcasting it on NBC and generating revenue solely from commercials and advertisements? I don't know. I honestly don't know what to expect. I doubt it, at least in this game, because it's Toledo. Yeah. Um, but who knows? So every other conference is going to be eyeing this, and it could have a massive impact on future television rights deals with other conferences. Because... Look, we're already seeing it with the SEC and ESPN. ESPN is paying a shit ton of money so that every SEC football game is on a Disney property, which includes ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, um, SEC Network. So imagine if Fox were to do the same thing, right? They could withhold all of Big Ten football games to any Fox property. And not just that. They might go a step further and say that ESPN isn't even allowed to use any of their highlights. So if you want to watch some Big Ten pregame or postgame football coverage, you have to tune in to, say, Big Noon Kickoff. That's their competing um, Saturday pregame show to College Game Day. Now, they still have a ways to go. I mean, College Game Day is still the staple.
2: might even take a step further. And say the latest start time we're going to have is 11 a.m. We're starting games at 6 a.m., putting them all in the morning, so people wake up on Saturday and it's just Big Ten football, kind of like the Premier League.
1: Yeah, we we're going to own the morning market. We're just going to totally like neglect the West Coast. We're going to have games as early as possible because clearly that's what they want to do. Um, but yeah, I think it could have huge ramifications. I remember when I was working at ESPN, the Big Ten, specifically Fox, they were really weird with their rights um, on digital. Like, ESPN could show highlights only like a certain amount, though, on any of their shows except College Game Day. And that sort of started with the previous Big Ten commissioner, Jim Delaney. He did not really like ESPN, to put it bluntly. And I think Andy Staples reported too that. Um, the only reason he was willing to sell Big Ten games to the network was because he was afraid that if he didn't do that, ESPN would basically stop talking about the Big Ten entirely and give them a lot less exposure, which would in turn negatively impact all the schools in the conference. But if down the road, shoulder programming doesn't really matter and everyone is just all about exclusivity because they see that it works well here and in other instances, like with SEC and ESPN, we could be looking at a situation where if you want to watch a Big Ten game, you're going to have to subscribe to whatever streaming service they do. With SEC, it'd probably be ESPN+. And then where does that leave the ACC in the Pac-12? I don't know. Again, this is just one game, Notre Dame against Toledo, but I think all the important eyes in college football are going to be seeing how this plays out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, maybe if that ends up happening, then who wants to subscribe to Fox to watch the Big Ten? I mean it's all a bunch of just shitty football, but um yeah I, I don't pac twelve, <laughs> yeah, I mean maybe, but now it's it's interesting it's certainly like I said, that seems to be the way everything's going, so we'll see, but I do also recognize that there's a long ways to go for that to actually come to fruition, and'm thankful for that because like I said, I still think cable is king um I think there's just too too big of a pull, but we'll
1: see, yeah, I also just personally I hate watching games on a streaming service because it's always like a little bit delayed. Like you can't yeah, look at your phone that was the point because if that, people are watching it on cable, it exactly. sucks. Exactly.
2: Well, that was the point that somebody, somebody was complaining about Peacock and uh, they were like, I was like, well, why don't you just go to the game? Because like, it was, it was one of our friends in Chicago and he was well, I can't, I'm moving that day. Like, okay. That's fair. And now it's really annoying because I know you're going to be texting while you're at the game, like three seconds from like, well, it's Toledo, man. If I have, if I'm texting a lot during Toledo, then we have other issues. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's so true, and I, and the good thing is too. Peacock, I guess, already dabbled in the sports streaming game. They broadcast English Premier League games, and I guess it had a really rough start, but. They've sort of figured it out. Hopefully, yeah, uh, that carries over Notre I Dame. Mean, they don't really need that rough stuff. Yeah, start.
2: I actually downloaded or got a subscription last week to watch the U.S. Basketball Olympics semifinal, um, but I've already since canceled my subscription. But it was fine. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what am I? I don't watch soccer, so don't really need it for anything else. But it was fine. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see.
1: All right, now to uh, expand a little bit on the conference realignment, the potential shifts in college football. Let's bring on. Matt Fortuna. All right, we're excited to welcome back Matt Fortuna to the show. Matt is a national college football writer for The Athletic and co-host of the Shamrock Podcast. Matt, with the start of training camp, there's certainly plenty of things we want to get to about this year's Notre Dame football team. But I want to start with some discussion around conference realignment because you and your team of writers at The Athletic have been all over the story since the news broke regarding Texas and Oklahoma's move to the sec and you specifically had a great article about Notre Dame's place in the whole thing so for our listeners definitely check that out if you haven't already but Matt I'd love to know just as a fan of college football how do you feel about conference realignment and its impact on the on the future of the sport
0: well Tyler, Luke thanks for having me I had a blast coming on with you guys around this time last year and happy I didn't screw up too badly to, to get a second invite so uh, how do I feel about it you know I'm a little bit removed from it just because I'm not like a student or an employee at one of these schools that has seen tradition just picked apart piece by piece, seeing every non-football sport being completely disregarded. I mean, you tell me if we heard one basketball coach comment on any of this in the last couple of weeks, like Bill Self tweeted two weeks ago that he had COVID and no one even batted an eye. We're talking about like a national champion Hall of Fame coach. And it's like, whatever, basketball does not even exist right now. It's all football. That being said, you know, I'm I'm a, I don't know, would you call it cynical enough, just being a Jada media member? like I understand how this works and I understand why this is moving the way it's moving. The question is, you know, what's the ultimate end game here? Is it uh, a dollar figure that will make everyone whole and happy? Is it a complete break off from the NCAA, which I think is slowly but surely moving toward that direction, um, especially Mark Emmert's comments a couple of weeks ago after he got his contract extension, of course, saying, hey, let's, you know, maybe the NCAA shouldn't be, shouldn't have its hands involved in this, this, and this. We need to be a little more hands off. Uh, Greg Sankey, who's been the mastermind behind it all, uh, the SEC commissioner, uh, has not exactly hid his displeasure with the SEC publicly over the last year. So I think they're there could be some legs to that movement as well. But, you know, I'm curious, as I'm sure you guys are, what is next? I mean, every conference, rightly or wrongly, is kind of on edge right now, wondering, you know, if we don't move at all, are we going to be left behind? Um, that is a great subplot to all this. I mean, Bob Bolsby, the second longest power five, uh, second longest tenured power five commissioner uh, the Big 12, was working on this playoff subgroup with Jack Swarbrick, uh, Craig Thompson of the Mountain West Conference, and Greg Sankey of the SEC. And these guys were in, if not close corners, because they were in Zoom most of the time, but they they were working very, very closely, a group of four over the last 30 months to basically reinvent the way the sport determined its national champion. And all the while, Greg Sankey is just twisting the knife behind Bob Bowlesby's back, taking his two biggest breadwinners uh, right out from under him and basically decimating the Big 12 as we know it. So there's certainly some savviness there. There's certainly a, a Machiavellian element to all of this. And you know, again, as a a guy who's removed from this from the pure theater standpoint, you know, I'm highly entertained because uh, there's no shortage of, of drama and, and innuendo, and uh, you know, you see Kansas and other schools tweeting out, "Look at our new airport terminal!" Terminal, and putting all sorts of crazy things out there just to try to make themselves more attractive for wherever whatever other league may be out there. So I'm, I, you know, personally, I'm very amused and entertained by all of it, but don't think for a moment I don't recognize that like so much of what makes college athletics great is being completely cut out from all of this. Um, when the dominoes ultimately fall and when we get whatever we, we are on the path we're getting when conference alignment uh, inevitably stops. Yeah. That's, that's funny. You say that because
2: I remember, well, first of all, it feels like years ago that, that, Announcement about the expanded college football play- field came out, and In reality—it's only a w- few weeks ago. I'm pretty sure Bolesby after that, said he thanks Greg Sankey for making it happen and applauded him for doing what's best for college football. I think you said something similar on the Shamrock, like "Wow, for once, the big, you know, power brokers in college football did what's best for everybody else." Turns out there was something else going on behind the scenes. Um, I mean, what they said that the Oklahoma and Texas conversations have been going on for close to a year, so. I'm just curious, I mean, how does that ultimately impact the new college football playoff format? I mean, there's probably not a, a real answer to that right now, but but how do you see that changing things? Yeah, yeah. shame on me,
0: first off, for like the one time believing in the greater good of the sport <laughs> and the the motives of those who are ultimately dictating the fate of the sport, thinking they were taking an egalitarian approach, a democratic approach that was going to make everyone rich and happy. My bad on that. And, and you know, it's kind of <laughs> funny hearing Greg, Greg Sankey come out, uh, George, Kalavka, the new PAC 12 commissioner, it, it said a, a week ago or so ago, you know, maybe we need to re-examine, um, the college football playoff expansion now because of this. And Greg Sagan came out. and was like, PAC 12, you guys were the ones that wanted expansion. The SEC was fine at four. Don't come at me saying we need to, we need to, you know, contract now or not expand because of how big the SEC is going to get. The SEC is going to be fine no matter what. And look, that's the truth. They're getting one, if not two teams in, uh, most years in, in a 14 field. And I think, you know, however, whatever the size of the field is in the future, the SEC will continue to dominate that. How does it affect the the future of the 12 team playoff, you know, making calls around um, the industry, being around ACC media days with some power brokers there when this broke um, in late July. Um, I got the sense that this was not going to change that format I think 12 teams is still the favorite approach by most people around the country. I do think we're going to have to pump the brakes on the timing of this because the people who ultimately will okay this thing want to know what the conference makeup will look like um, when that happens. Bill Hancock, the executive director of the CFP had said in I think multiple statements, you know, no sooner than 2023. I I would be shocked if we have a 12 team playoff in 2023. I think again, this thing's moving so fast. It's hard to, to, to really calculate, you know, what the PAC 12 is going to look like, what the ACC is going to look like, what the big, will the big 12 even exist. Right. So it's tough to say, yeah, we want this playoff format when we don't even know what our conference will look like. The other part of it too, um, because the current deal goes through, I think 2025, if I'm not mistaken with ESPN, there's a sense of why would we rush this thing and give ESPN basically a even more of a monopoly over the sport than it already has. We've seen Bob Bowlesby of the big 12 put out a season assist letter to ESPN basically accusing ESPN of conspiring to, um, get other schools to leave the big 12 and therefore crumble the big 12 and, you know, eliminate exit fees and expedite this whole process toward the SEC or wherever the other schools may be going. Like I have no doubt that that's happening. I also know Bert Magnus and, and those guys at ESPN, this isn't their first rodeo. Um, uh, you know, they're not leaving a paper trail. And if they are, they're, they're not particularly smart. I, I don't think this is going to go anywhere, um, uh, from a legal standpoint. And guys, if you haven't listened to to John Skipper, the ex ESPN president on a the Dan Levitard show. He went into this as well last week. Great listening. I highly recommend for any fan of the business of college sports of, to, to hear it from a guy who was in those rooms and, and knows exactly how this works. I mean, it was, it, it basically confirmed, I think, a lot of suspicions a lot of us had. I don't know if you learned a whole lot about it, if you were paying attention to the way the sport has operated the last decade or so, but definitely enlightening and, and validating to hear it from the horse's mouth in John Skipper. Um, I just don't think there's a, a sense right now of, why won't we take this thing to open market in a couple of years? If we're not in a rush to, to get this done ASAP in 2023, uh, why not wait the extra two or three years, take this open market, maybe create a bidding war between Fox and ESPN, maybe you know, split it down the middle or not, not down the middle, split it the way every other professional sport splits its postseason. right? Uh, the NBA has the conference finals on TNT and ABC. Um, MLB has its playoffs on Fox and on TBS. With 12 teams, there's a lot more inventory, right? Maybe you could say, all right, you know, Fox, ESPN split the first round and quarterfinal games. Fox get the semifinals, ESPN gets the big one at the end. I'm just throwing that out there. It's hypothetical. I I just think there's a lot more money to actually be made in a 12 team playoff, and it would be foolish of these guys to to not tap into that extra revenue stream if they have the opportunity to. And I think with everyone being caught, you know, blindsided uh, by SEC expansion. Uh, that's given people pause here to, to take a step back, exhale a little bit, see where things fall and it, take it to the open market in a couple of years.
1: Yeah, you mentioned ESPN. And I think at the end of this, it all goes back to that new deal that they have with the SEC that'll um, start in 2025 that, I mean, the numbers, the exact figures haven't come out yet. Um, I've heard them report in the three billion dollar range. We know they have to be insane for CBS to just completely fold their hand and say, you know, we're, we can't compete with that or we're just not going to engage in that kind of money. So on one hand, I understand why the college football fan is upset at ESPN and thinking, you know, that they're monopolizing the sport, which they are. But from a business sense, there doesn't exist a business in the world who's just like, you know, what? we're we're okay with the amount of money we're making. They're always going to be trying to make more, but ESPN also owns the ACC network. And now um, the ACC is in a position where they feel they need to make a splash and adding Notre Dame full-time would be, I mean, there's just not a bigger splash than that. But now under this expanded format, Notre Dame's independence feels even more secure than probably ever before, at least in recent years. So what have you heard about Notre Dame's position um, again, as of this day on this recording, sort of in the fallout of the news, because again, this could change uh, at any moment.
0: Yeah, I don't think a whole lot has changed. I think um, you know Pete Sampson and I recorded a Shamrock episode shortly after the 12-team playoff was officially and officially or officially presented, um, and, and I think there was a sense of yeah, Notre Dame's got of great. Look at them; they're, they're you know. Why would they ever join a conference like they're going to be in the playoffs so much more now because it's 12 teams and i don't disagree with all that i just thought at the time that was a the to basically give up a buy if you're a top four seed which they would have been at least three times now in the brian kelly era i thought that was a major major concession toward independence that they had never really had to give up before and i thought if your, your goal is to win a national championship Join the damn ACC. You saw what it was like, like last year. Like you'll you'll never lose more than one game a year, and you'll always be a top ten, top twelve team, I should say, if you're in the ACC. So from a competitive standpoint, as far as you know, creating a path toward winning a national championship, I thought that was a pretty big concession. Now, as we see in this unstable landscape, a few weeks later. Um, I don't know if there's ever been a better time to be independent, at least as a major brand like Notre Dame. I mean, you're free of all the politics and stress that comes with what the last three weeks have brought upon the rest of the conferences, not in the SEC. You get to essentially call your own shot, um, You you can you have the ACC deal locked in. You have your the grant of rights protected for all of your other non football sports through 2036, which is no small matter. You have that bowl access uh, with the ACC. You have everything you need right now. In addition to football independence, and uh, the only way I could see this changing for Notre Dame is you know access toward a postseason format, whatever that may be, and guess who's one of the four guys who devised this and to hear the people in the room tell the guy who led this 12 team playoff, Jack Swarbrick. So <laughs> it's almost like they've got the cheat code right in front of them while they're playing the video game. From this standpoint, like they've got it so good right now. They have all the leverage in the world. The ACC is on pins and needles right now, wondering what's going to happen because they're so far behind financially. Um, and, and the only way to really make them whole is to have Nerding join. And I just, I don't see a reason for Nerding to do that right now, especially when you look at the future and you look at fighting Irish TV and what a success that's been, you know, from a a number standpoint, obviously they're not charging yet, but they will. And, you know, what's that get packaged into? How does that change um, the relationship between Notre Dame and its fan? Is there a more direct to consumer approach that you just can't get away with when you're part of a conference and part of a, you know, a group of 12, 13 other schools. I, I just think that NBC deal, you know, regardless of the finances of it, you have ownership there that gives you a freedom that you cannot put a price on during moments like these when you know the whole world's going to hell and you're just sitting there doing what you've always done and your fan base is, if, if anything, only growing.
2: Now, speaking of Jack Swarbrick and that NBC deal, Swarbrick has said in the past that Notre Dame has no financial advantage to being independent in terms of operations, especially when you look at the TV deals with other Power 5 conferences. Now, I think that contract that's them around 15 million a year. And it's set to expire also following the 2025 season, which is in line with a lot of those other deals we just discussed. So from your perspective, how does that deal with NBC factor into all the discussions looking toward the future?
0: I think whether it's NBC or or, or anyone else, and I, I, I have a hard time figuring out who else that anyone else could be just because ESPN is going to have inventory concerns. Fox has their deals with, with the other three conferences. Um, I just think having that element where you could go on to fighting Irish TV right now and dial up any Notre Dame home football game of the last 30 years, like Clemson's doing something similar in the process of doing something similar right now with their own standalone app um, and streaming service, but they're not going to have the inventory aside from not having the fan base that Notre Dame has, they're not going to have the inventory where they could just drop in any game they want or, or any, you know, in-house programming they want the way Notre Dame can because of how much of their own content that they own. And, you know, I'm sure you guys have been on it. There's a very Netflix like approach to it, right? Like let's say you're watching last year's Clemson game. There's going to be like next up, just like Netflix, when you watch, uh, you know, uh, when you're binging a show. So um, I I just think, yes, there is, you know, I, I would, Recommend to repeat Samson's story from, I think, two years ago when he talked to Jack Swarbrick and Jimmy Don and a lot of other big stakeholders at Notre Dame about why independence is so important. Yeah, they do sacrifice uh, financially in the short term by not joining a conference. No question about that. Uh, the donors and the big alums of the world and the people who make Notre Dame Notre Dame, uh, for lack of a better term, who come from all over, not just this country, but the world, and live and grow up and, and mature with people from all over the, the, the world. And uh, what makes it such a national and really international university? Uh, you know, they're committed to basically bridging whatever gap there may be financially in terms of donations, you name it, uh, to, to make independence worthwhile for them. and. Um, while the world is smaller and I don't think too much of that aspect would be lost if they joined the ACC full time, especially since they're in Indiana. Um, I just think having control during a time where everything seems to be out of your control is, is, is it's unique. I mean, I don't know. I wonder if Texas has explored that option because I can't think of too many other brands that might have even the capability to do that. Um, but again, if you're Notre Dame, you don't need to worry about, infrastructure and distribution with all of your other sports, because that's already being taken care of for care of for you right now with the ACC network and ESPN. All you got to worry about is where do we put our six home football games a year? And as long as you can do that, um, it's just a really liberating feeling for Notre Dame.
1: One last question on that. Is it crazy to think CBS could eventually become a factor since they really don't have a hand in the game anymore, at least in college football, or they won't by that point? Yeah, I mean, it's
0: funny you say that, because right when I was talking about that, I'm thinking, I'm like, I got all that work. I'm like, wait, no, CBS is not going to have the SCA anymore. Um, I think that's a fun hypothetical. I, I do, without knowing the way CBS works, I do know... You know, they had a real sweetheart deal from the SEC that basically paid them $55 million a year to broadcast that 330 SEC game of the week, which was almost always the the number one watch afternoon time slot game in college football. Um, When ESPN is going to take that over, I think in 2023 for $300 million, CBS basically said we're not paying anything more. Like we got what we wanted out of it. We're done. We're out of this game. Is that true just for the SEC? Is that true for all of college football? I don't know, um, you know, the CBS on Showtime. Showtime did debut their season with series at Notre Dame in 2015. Um, I know this sounds like an old wives tale, but I believe it's America's most watched network because most of the people putting on TV are old people who don't have cable and they immediately turn on <laughs> channel two and they don't know how to change the channel anymore. So they just leave it on to watch 60 minutes or whatever uh, sitcoms on at night. I mean, that, there's a lot of truth to that. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, so maybe that's an option. I don't know. I, I haven't heard anything of the sort. CBS certainly sounded like they were out of the business of college football once they let that SEC deal um, go to market. Um, but, but you know, I, I have no reason to think Notre Dame wouldn't be with, with NBC in the future. But that's definitely an interesting hypothetical to, to think about and talk about it a few years.
1: OK, let's turn our attention then to uh, this year's Notre Dame team. By the time we release this episode, Notre Dame will have just opened fall camp. And with that comes a new wave of excitement and expectations, especially coming off their second appearance in the college football playoff what's the main storyline you'll be following over the course of these next few weeks?
0: Um, quarterbacks. I mean, I think
1: we all expect Jack
0: Cohn to win the job and I would be an upset or frankly, probably wouldn't be a good thing. Um, if he didn't win the job, um, the fact that he hasn't been outright named the starter yet is what always gives you a little pause there, or at least allows us the room to kind of speak about it on podcasts and the like, but um, I do want to see how Tyler Buckner pushes him. I mean, um, it, you know, hearing people in that building talk about him, we all saw the spring game, right? Like he just got there in the spring. He didn't play a high school senior season. He threw two, he scored two touchdowns, the only two touchdowns. He looked really, really good. Uh, by all accounts, he's like the perfect nerding student athlete. Like just, a, he, he would fit in just fine there if he wasn't playing football. Brilliant kid. Uh, there's no place in the world that really, you know, he, he'd fit better at than where he is right now. And you hear the people there talk and say, like, if we ever do get over that hump, like if we ever, um, you know, are more than just a, an annual playoff contender and actually are a national championship contender, it's going to be because this guy is, is that good and develops that much. So um, is it realistic to think he's going to come in there um, with all that inexperience and win the job in week one or really at any point in the season over a guy who's in his fifth year and has started a Rose Bowl in 17 games for Wisconsin? Probably not. Um, especially when you look at the makeup of this offense with, with so many uh, new faces up front. So um, I'm curious how that battle plays out, even if we think we know what the end result will be. And the other part of it, you know, what's the defense look like? It's going to be a completely different defense. They're losing a lot of material from last season, uh, but they've got, you know, probably a top 10 pick in the back end and Kyle Hamilton. They've got a lot of depth up front on the line, uh, we've heard a lot about Marcus Freeman, the recruiter, um, and deservedly so when you look at what he's put together so far on the trail. Uh, but but you know this was a damn good defense under Clark Lee, and it's going to basically be learning entirely new language with some uh, new faces and key spots this year. So how quickly can they get up to speed?
2: Thinking back to the start of last season, there were a lot of whispers about Kyron Williams' fall camp and his potential to have a breakout season. That certainly happened. He yep. delivered and, and really exceeded, I would say, everyone's expectations. So, which player do you expect might be able to have a similar breakout type year?
0: You know, it's funny because that one, that was the one that you heard all along and ended up being a thousand percent true, right? The guy was the ACC at offense. He was AC rookie of the year. I don't think he was offense player,
1: but he was a rookie of the year. And, and he had like two touchdowns in the season opener. Like it happened right away. And he you know, didn't, he was time. a yeah.
0: fifth stringer coming out of 2019,
1: right? right? Or, or going into 2019, I should
0: say. It was, it was very quick and people were on point with that one. Who will it be here? I mean, I, I've been singing this guy's praises on the Shamrock ever since he got on campus because everyone keeps talking about it to me. Uh, Blake Fisher, I mean, you hear the way he looks and, you know, look, he's not going to be scoring touchdowns. But, you know, he, I think there's a better chance than not right now um, in the first week of August as I talk to you guys saying he's going to be their opening day starter at left tackle, which is pretty absurd to think about for a true freshman. Um, at a place as steeped in offensive line tradition as Notre Dame I mean he, he's by all accounts the real deal and I think you know if you feel that strongly about a true freshman that he could start a left tackle and you've also added uh, an all-conference uh, guard and Kane Madden who'll probably start a right guard I think all of a sudden some of those question marks about the offensive line start to go away now they're I don't see a a path possible for them to be as good as they were last year, because they were so senior laden and they had three guys taken in the first three rounds and you just don't make up for that inexperience overnight. But I I think it's going to be a damn good offensive line. Uh, The other one, I mean, you know, we talk about this guy every single year and I'm not saying it's going to happen for him, but if it doesn't happen for him, then it's never going to happen for him. Kevin Austin. I mean, he's either been hurt or in trouble pretty much his entire career. We've seen what he's capable of when he is healthy. We've heard um, what he's capable of behind the scenes when he is healthy and if he is healthy and he has his stuff together, like that changes the conversation a little bit about this offense, just because we know what they have a running back. We know what they have a tight end. We think we know what they have a quarterback, Um, but we don't know if they have that, you know, stretch the field, big game wide receiver. And if you can put that element into that offense, that gives Tommy Reese some creative space to, 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 to work, to work more with and to maybe take this offense to a place. It wasn't quite able to go last year, but I still think, you know, bread and butter identity-wise is still going to be a meaty crown and pound, beat the crap out of you in the trenches kind of offense. Which is one reason why I can't wait to see that that Wisconsin game among all the other storylines going into that one. I think you've got two very like-minded teams taking the field together September twenty-sixth.
1: Yeah, and Brian Kelly's been. Very candid this offseason about how Notre Dame needs more production from the receiver position after, you know, a pretty difficult year from that group last season. I mean, he's called out Braden Lindsey, Joe Wilkins, and Lawrence Keys by name a couple times now. Um, I think him and, and Tommy Reese, too, when he was on the Shamrock, tried to temper expectations a little bit with Kevin Austin just because of everything he's had to deal with. You know, recently the foot injury that sidelined him all of last season. So looking at the group as a whole, especially now that they've got new guys coming in and Dion Colsey and Lorenzo styles who has been there for a little bit. Now, how much of the season success on the offensive side of the ball is sort of predicated on that group's production as a whole. You know, it's interesting you put it that way. I think
0: you look at this year's schedule and you look at the losses on this roster from last year. And I still think, you know, an optimistic Nerd Dame fan can talk him or herself into them winning every single game. I mean, I think when you look at – We can do that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I can do it. I mean, if you get through that Wisconsin game, I mean, look, Carolina's going to be better. USC will be better. Cincinnati's going to be a tough game. But I I think if you're the tougher team inside, which Notre Dame is, nine out of ten games, if not more, that it plays – you're going to win as long as you don't screw up. It's when you get to that next level against the Ohio States and Alabama's of the right. world, where those guys on the outside, they're, they're just too quick. There are too many of them. You can't keep up and you can't go punch for punch with them. So as far as, you know, where can Notre Dame go if they get more out of the receivers um, than, than we think they can, I wouldn't say national championship, but I think we at least, you know, I think it's been almost a foregone conclusion in a lot of people's minds, especially after seeing a three-year starter go back, go to the NFL, uh, three-year starter quarterback, Ian Buck. I think there's almost a, a bracing of, all right, 2022 is where we're going to be really good. This is going to be kind of a bridge here. This is going to be a uh, a rebuilding, reloading, whatever type of year you want to frame it as. If those receivers are, are really good, then I, I don't see why you wouldn't be talking playoff. I mean, you probably got to go undefeated with the schedule to be in the playoff, but I mean, I, if Notre Dame plays above its expectations, I certainly think that's possible.
1: And now on the other side of the ball, you mentioned it earlier, all the talk throughout the offseason surrounding new defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman has been his ability to recruit, but his primary responsibility is to coach the players that he already has. And you mentioned it's a new scheme, different players from last year, but from a schematic point, how different do you expect this defense to look, uh, at least compared to the defenses we've seen um, in the recent years under Clarkley?
0: I think it'll be look a lot different. Um, will it be better? Probably not immediately. I mean, I think for all the Marcus Freeman hype, and I get it. I think we're forgetting like the last the guy he's replaced just became an SEC head coach before the age of forty. He was really freaking good at his job. He made the playoff two out of three years, um, and I'm not sure he had. I mean, with all due respect to the talent on that roster he wasn't working with Clemson or Ohio state's personnel um, e- either. Like he was really, really good. And he was underrated recruiter as well. But I do think schematically, this could be a completely different defense. I think they're going to um, turn the front seven loose a lot more, take a lot more risks, try to get after the quarterback a lot more, whether they're able to or not. Um, and, you know, really, they're going to have to rely on a secondary that, you know, I think there are some legitimate questions about now. I've talked to people there who've said, look, Our secondary wasn't world beaters last year either, so uh, we're not expecting it to be terribly worse. Uh, You still got Kyle Hamilton back there who is, you know, he's he's Jalen Smith of the secondary, right? Like he's an eraser. He he can make good things happen out of bad things very, very quickly. And those players just don't come out of nowhere. I mean, those are generational type players uh, that you have to appreciate when you have so. Um, I think schematically it's going to look a lot different. I don't know how much better or worse they'll be this year. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see, cause I think that's a deeper defensive line than it's been in recent years. I think there's some, not question marks, but you know, I, those linebackers are a little bit of a mystery to me. I think we've seen them all play a little bit, but you know, if there's no Jeremiah Usu Karamoa among that group and then again the secondary you have Kyle Hamilton you have Clarence Lewis who who surprised everyone with how well he played last year uh, but but it's a bit of a question mark at those two other spots and we'll see how that that plays out yeah
2: it's funny you bring that up because I honestly would argue that maybe that that secondary is the most interesting position group on the team because it is so inexperienced as a whole but maybe has the best defensive back in all of college football too so Judging that, you know, what do you expect to see from that group heading into the season? I know there's a lot of uncertainty, but I'm curious what your expectations are there.
0: Yeah, week one's so fascinating to me because it's a Sunday night primetime game where you're going to have the nation's attention to yourself. It's a a tough environment. I mean, at least it will be that game when Florida State still thinks they might be good. Um, I don't know who's going to play quarterback. McKenzie Miller says he's healthy, and if he is, like, that should be your guy. Now, the guy... I'm not trying to be like facetious. He nearly lost his leg to amputation. Like he's coming off a like catastrophic leg injury where people thought he might not walk again, let alone play football again. And here he is in line to possibly start against Notre Dame uh, on the opening night, on opening night of college football. Um, It's going to be a good test for, for Notre Dame. It's going to remind me a lot of that Louisville game a couple of years ago, except with probably a better roster just because of the way Florida state recruits relative to Louisville. And we saw, um, two years ago, you know, that adrenaline rush of the opening game of playing a, a Notre Dame team coming off a playoff berth, that's probably going to be a double-digit favorite. Like, that's real. Like, Louisville marched down and scored touchdowns on its first two drives against Notre Dame that night, and you're thinking, holy cow, like, is this really happening? Like, and sure enough, you know, Notre Dame asserted its physical dominance and ended up winning pretty comfortably at the end. I wouldn't be surprised if something similar happens. Um, In Tallahassee this year, I think Florida State's still a year or two away from really – I mean, I think they could be a bowl team this year, but I don't think they're close to being really, really good again, and I think they still have a lot of concerns up front on that offensive line, all due respect to uh, the late great Dylan Gibbons, who has switched over from Notre Dame to Florida State. Um, I I just think physically Notre Dame is is going to overwhelm Florida State that night when all is said and done, wear them down, and and ultimately win this game – by, you know, 10, 14 points or so. So you know, what am I looking for from the secondary there? Um, don't get beat deep and, and, you know, keep your man in front of you and, you know, nothing else, wait for Kyle Hamilton to bail you out. Because again, he, he's a guy that um, he, he's, he's, he, I'd be curious to see where he see here's his name called in April. Like it's, it's not tough time. I'll be shocked.
1: Yeah, I really hope Notre Dame sort of bucks that trend of sluggish season openers that they've had in recent years because uh, they're going to have a big one next year at Ohio State to open the season. So that could be that could
0: be the Quinn Ewers' starting debut. I mean, it could have been already, <laughs> but now it really could be. Yeah,
1: that's crazy. True. Like 18-year-old starting quarterback. Maybe that'll work in our favor. But before we let go, we have to put you on the spot. As it stands today, you know, barring injury or anything else that um, could happen throughout the season, What will Notre Dame's record be at the end of the 2021 regular season?
0: Uh, I'll go 10 and 2. I know that's like the probably the conservative, like common pick. Um, I think 11 1 is possible and things go wrong. I think, you know, worse is possible. But I think they have a tougher schedule this year than they did last year in the regular season, Clemson notwithstanding. Um, And I think at some point, you know, they're such a known commodity. They they win the games they're supposed to win, Um, they win their games at home, they take care of business at some point like that comes to an end. I don't know how it's going to come to end, but I'd venture to guess that when you say goodbye to a fourth round pick, a quarterback who was a two-year captain and a three-year starter and really some ways four-year starter. um, I just think that something's missing when Ian book and that line is gone. That is going to be hard to, to quantify or replicate until you see it, whether it's against Wisconsin or whether it's against North Carolina or some other good to great team later in the year. Um, I just think eventually they're going to get got at some point. And and this seems like the prime year for that to happen when you look at the makeup of this roster and the makeup of the
1: schedule. So do you have any two losses in mind or you just think like they'll probably drop one, they should win?
0: Uh, Wisconsin. I mean, I think they're, you know, they're already an underdog in that one. And again, that's going to be a great game. I could easily see that one going either way. Um, I'll say Wisconsin. I mean, what, Jack Cone transferred for a reason, right? He wasn't going to beat out Graham Burke. So you have to give the quarterback edge to Wisconsin in that game, even if the guys only played five or six games in his career so far. Um, so I'll go Wisconsin. And, you know, everyone's freaking out about Cincinnati. I get it, but I still think they're, I hate to like denigrate them and say, oh, they're a group of five team, but the difference between power five teams and group of five teams are always in the trenches. Like it's not quarterback play. It's not receiver play. Like you get high end draft picks who play skill positions there. The difference comes on the line and that's a battle Notre Dame's going to win more often than not. So I don't think they're going to lose that game, especially when you have Marcus Freeman and Mike Mickens on that staff who know that personnel on the other side of the ball inside and out. Um, I think North Carolina or USC, you know, one of those teams that recruits really well and and maybe should be better than they usually are. Um, I, I think those are games that, you know, could catch Notre Dame off guard.
1: Okay, if you're not subscribed to The Athletic already, you should definitely get on that before the season starts. And uh, be sure to follow Matt on Twitter as well, at Matt underscore Fortuna. Matt, thank you for the time as always, man. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, and that was Matt Fortuna. Appreciate him coming on again. And I thought it was interesting that he picked Notre Dame to lose to Wisconsin. I know that Notre Dame is currently underdogs, but um, there's been some news surrounding that game recently as Notre Dame released their Shamrock Series uniforms. Uh, for that game, which will be played at Soldier Field. And look, we tweeted when they sort of leaked a couple weeks ago. And let's be honest, like those leaks, the way those <laughs> uniforms look, they, they were hideous. hideous. Okay, so I think our reaction was totally justified in the moment. But fortunately, they looked a hell of a lot better on the mannequin than they did in the leak. If you haven't seen them, pretty similar. Nothing too crazy. Navy tops, gold pants with a navy and white stripe. And the the funny thing is, though, this whole thing is twisted because Notre Dame was supposed to be the home team last year in Lambeau, which doesn't really make any sense considering Lambeau is in Wisconsin. And now this year, the game's going to be at Soldier Field in Chicago, which is... I mean, Notre Dame West, essentially, and now Wisconsin's going to be the home team. And Notre Dame's jerseys are definitely inspired by the Packers' uniforms, so they were obviously designed in the lead-up to last year. And Wisconsin's all-white uniforms have the same Bears number font. So it's kind of a hilarious mix-up, but what were your thoughts on them?
2: Yeah, I mean, you're right. When they got leaked a few weeks back in retail, they looked horrible, horrible. But um, I don't know if you saw this video today, too, but there was a video that Notre Dame put out yeah of Houston Griffith and Kyron Williams walking around Chicago before ending at Soldier field in the uniforms themselves and they look fine. So maybe that's a reminder that football jerseys are made for actual football players and not 45 year old men in town for a game. like I remember those horrible uh, army like the games in the, in the 2016 year where they were like the green camo jerseys. And I can't tell you how many like grown men, yeah, yeah, and like people still wear them. Like, first off, they look like shit. Second off, we went four and eight. Like, why are we bringing (laughs) back any memory of this? But we will do it for whatever reason. But I mean, these jerseys—they're not the—they're not the all whites from Jerry World back in thirteen against Arizona State, which were sweet. But they're not terrible either. Uh, But I will say, do you remember my reaction to the Yankee Stadium jersey release? Which, by the way, also. I think anybody who went to that game would tell you looked way better in person than they did in the release. Do you remember what my reaction was?
1: Um, Probably that Notre Dame should suspend its contract with Under Armour because I had a similar reaction. They look terrible, man.
2: Yeah, I I looked it back up because it was right along the lines of that. I actually tweeted at them, you guys messed this up big time. I want to puke. How did you get paid for this? And you replied to it saying was just thinking I would pay money to be able to see your initial reaction to these. But this one tweet is all I wow. need. Thanks. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they're not that bad. But, I, I mean, they are what they are. But I think your point about the Packers thing, it's, it's very obvious that um, they just used the jerseys from last year. And Notre Dame putting in all these weird connections of how they connect to Chicago. Yeah.
1: The gloves on the inside of the gloves, something that literally no one is going (laughs) to see. And you you
2: sent me an article of the Wisconsin equivalent of One Foot Down based on the SB Nation site saying that the uniforms that Wisconsin was wearing were made for last year's game. And this was released a couple weeks ago. So that's pretty much all I need.
1: They're Adidas, right? They're just leaning into it. No,
2: they're, they're, they're Under Armour.
1: Oh. Well, then what the hell? What, what is what <laughs> I'm trying to do here? I, I, I mean, I guess now they're in Navy, so it looks more like the home team. Yeah,
2: I, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes you just can't admit, yeah, we're too lazy to do this, but whatever. We need to get out of that deal immediately. Now let's talk recruiting, uh, which had some very exciting news this past week. Notre Dame picked up two huge commitments last week, both at the wide receiver position, which has been a much maligned position both um, – I guess from a production standpoint, as well as its recruiting standpoint and the guy heading that. So last Wednesday, four-star Tobias Merriweather out of Washington State picked Notre Dame. Rivals has him as uh, the 155th-ranked player nationally and 21st out of the receivers. And then just a few days later on Sunday, C.J. Williams out of Monterey Day in California committed to Notre Dame over USC, Alabama, and Texas, Williams is a huge get for a lot of big reasons. He goes to modern day, which is right outside of Los Angeles and is a prime feeder for USC. Uh, frankly, I can't think of many modern day guys that Notre Dame has gotten besides friend of the program, Sam Bush and then uh, Joe Schmidt. So two walk-ons. So I can't really think of any scholarship guys. And further rivals has him as the number 29th ranked player nationally, and the third best receiver in the class. So that's pretty good. And uh, with the addition of these two guys, Notre Dame's class moved up to number one in the country yesterday. It sounds like Penn State may have reclaimed that title today, but who really gives a shit because I don't expect us to end up number one uh, at the end of this just from a sheer sheer mathematics standpoint. But it seems like this was a long time coming, both of these, and they helped fill a position of need. But what was your reaction to that news that came through the last several days?
1: Um, it's hard to imagine many college football coaches who had a better week than Dell Alexander last week, and um, he's been on the, you know, receiving end of a lot of criticism, and you know, some of that is justified. I would say just based on the receivers' production over the course um, of the time that he's been there. As a whole, like there's been obviously bright spots in Miles Boykin, Chase Claypool, but some of the big recruits didn't turn out or haven't turned out well yet but we'll see what happens this year. I know we, we've, we've talked about a little bit about the guys currently on the roster. Now uh, the return on investment might not be immediate um, with some of these guys starting with last year with Deion Colsey, Lorenzo styles, and then um, looking towards the future with CJ Williams and Tobias Merriweather. But the fact of the matter is after that Alabama game, it was clear that none of the receivers on the current Notre Dame team were nearly as good as those guys. This helps bridge the gap. Especially at this position. And I would just say that look, if you if you don't wanna watch some high school football tape, watch Tobias Merriweather. He's like six foot four, 185, but runs like he's probably five eleven. Then CJ Williams is unbelievable. I'm actually pretty excited that he's here um, in Los Angeles. I definitely wanna to go to one of their games at some point. It's a little bit of a drive, but That's a powerhouse high school football program. They play some really good competition. I think it'd be really cool to see CJ Williams in person um, before he makes it to campus. Also, I'm a loser and sometimes I have nothing better to do on a Friday night than watch high school football. Uh, But yeah, this is huge, huge for Notre Dame, huge for the long-term future uh, of the program. And I think Notre Dame is just in a really, really positive place as a whole.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, what I didn't say, I just think C.J. Williams is such a cool name for a wide receiver. Like it just sounds. Good and Tobias
1: Merriweather is cool. Yeah. it's like Maurice Stovall, yeah. Jeff Samarja. Yeah, yeah. yeah. C.J.
2: Williams reminds me of Mike Williams, the guy who was a stud at USC. Um, but yeah, you talked about Merriweather and the way he moves. Like, I think he's a bit underrated. Honestly, he's six four and he moves like a Ferrari. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to say he's Devonta Smith, right? Because that would be incredibly unfair. However, you watch his tape. He makes a lot of plays behind her, close to the line of scrimmage and then just speeds away and you start thinking, huh, I think I've seen this before. I think it was in Dallas at that Rose Bowl, but, uh, but maybe not. But, but like you said, having four <laughs> top 20 receivers the last two years, tying with Alabama and LSU, and now only Ohio State has more. Like I wrote that piece a few weeks ago about how few four stars Willingham and early Weiss got, and now it's kind of all we got better and that will be the case moving forward with anyone that gets added to this class whether it's um there's a three star or sorry a four star i just said that uh receiver andre green uh out of richmond he's a top 100 recruit i think number 16 receiver clemson's the favorite there but the irish have stayed in the race there and that kid's visiting for the clemson for the cincinnati game now so who knows what happens there and uh then you know we we I don't know I it's just uh things are really good from a recruiting standpoint and and it seems like they're only going to get better so I I don't have a lot to complain about there.
1: You're right, and after reading your article, it's so funny just to think about th- the people and the recruits that we used to get excited for back in those really dark days of the Notre Dame football program when we're going like seven and five or 6-6 and and have a huge game against Hawaii on Christmas Eve, and all of a sudden we think the program's turning it around. Now there's actual concrete evidence to suggest that um, Notre Dame can compete with the top players in college football. We saw that um, last November against Clemson. I don't care. Well, I do care, but I don't really want to discuss what happened in the ACC championship. But now with the way that the team is recruiting on both sides of the ball, it's looking like nothing but up from here. Looking at this season, who knows what's going to happen? But you just look at the future, at the recent history of the program, and um it's just a really, really good place. And I know we've said that a lot before, but, like, seriously, as a Notre Dame fan, you really should cherish these times as a fan because it's fun, we're competitive, and, like, looking down the road, it just looks like it's going to keep improving. And that's just really fucking exciting as a fan, I think, um, we're getting there, man. Who knows? You know, we, we all understand we're never going to be Alabama. We're never going to be Clemson. We're never going to probably be able to recruit at the level that Ohio State does. But, man, like, all we need is one year. And if it if it can all come together for one year, and there's definitely some pieces that make you think it could happen. Uh, maybe I'm daydreaming a little bit now, but uh, I think last week definitely helped fuel that fantasy a little bit.
2: Yeah. I mean, it just it feels um, like – there aren't a lot of chinks in the armor when you're. This is the quality of recruit you're getting. Like I know Brian Kelly made a comment about getting into the top five of recruiting, and um, I don't know if that's actually going to be feasible just from a mathematics standpoint. But it's going to be a damn good class, this 2022 class. And if you're really going to bitch about it, then I don't really know what to tell you. Like I, <laughs> I just don't. Um, also, that 2023 class off to a hot start. We talked about that a little yeah. bit. We also saw today. We made the top 5 for 2023 linebacker Drake Bowen out of Merville, Indiana and apparently wants to play both baseball and football at the next level. So, thank you to Link Jared for boosting up that side of things as well. So, uh there we go. But, yeah, all good things. Uh, this class is special so far. They're putting together a really special class. We'll see. They can add a couple linemen. Um, you know, we'll see how that works out also on the defensive side of the ball. We got a, a guy in the secondary uh, is, is, Xavier Wanpa, and as well as Anthony Lucas on the D line that could still make their way to the Golden Dome. So we'll see. Uh, it seems like anybody they do add in this class is going to be a stud as well. So that composite ranking um, is going to be pretty high, and I think that that's you know ultimately what's super important and and hopefully should just provide the depth that we've kind of lacked in big games the last hell decade. I don't know. Um,
1: just like when we've gotten on that stage, so. That's kind of how I'm viewing it, and, and I'm excited about it. All right, well, that's the show. Uh, we'll be back again soon here now as we get closer and closer to the start of the season. Camp is going to continue on for the next four weeks, and I'm sure there's going to be plenty of big announcements um, between now and the season opener. So, Until then, we will talk to you soon.